A Look Within podcast is brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Mental Health, a healthcare organization providing innovative mental health and wellness services across all of South Carolina. Learn more about our services and resources at www.scdmh.net. One of the biggest challenges we all face each and every day is this issue of change. Changing times and circumstances, fear of change, perhaps a call to change, you name it. And so how do we face change and deal with the uncertainty that it brings? What opportunities does it present to us? In my conversation today, we will address head on this issue of change with the incredibly gifted therapist, writer and educator, Dr. James Hollis. Dr. Hollis received his training as an analyst at the prestigious Young Institute of Zurich, Switzerland. He served as executive director of the Young Education Center in Houston, Texas, and as executive director of the Jungian Society in Washington, DC. He's written 18 books and counting, and he's currently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, DC. What follows is our conversation on how we might navigate these challenging times so that we may live a richer and more considered life. Uh, let me, I'm just going to get right into it rather than just doing some introductions or any sort of thing like mm-hmm. that. I want to sort of dive right in. And so um, I have a question for you here uh, that I've been wanting to ask. And I was reading your book, Living uh, Between Worlds, and there was a, a quote that you, uh, you had from Carl Jung uh, that I found really interesting. It was called, the greatest and most important problems of life are fundamentally insoluble. They must be so, for they express the necessary polarity inherent in every self-regulating system. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. Can you tell us, like, what is Jung trying to tell us there? Well, that's one of those many nuggets of wisdom that we're all still unpacking uh, decades later. Um, it's, it's based on the recognition that the core issues of life uh, stay with us. People think, well, I had this experience in my life and I can get beyond that or I can get it behind me or even cut it out of my life. But everything's recorded in us at the neurological level and at the emotional level. And you can see how these things keep showing up in our dreams and perhaps even more importantly in our behaviors. The critical question I always ask of those circumstances is, given what's going on intrapsychically, what does that make you do? What does that keep you from doing? And, and that's when we begin to get down to the practical dimensions of this psychological project. And, and we realize the core issues of life are not solvable because they keep coming up in new situations. But the things that dominated you in the past that caused those stuck places, those fixations, you can outgrow. And, and you can learn to absorb them into a larger system. The psyche becomes more commodious, if you will. It can take in more. I mean, this is part of the gift of relationships. Um, Part of what relationship brings to us is the otherness of the other. And as we absorb the experience of the other, we we become larger ourselves. And so uh, I've seen so many people, and I'm sure our therapists in the audience feel this way too, who've said, oh, I'm so angry at myself. I'm chagrined. I thought I got beyond this situation and it popped up again, or I wound up screaming at my mother on the phone the other day, and I know better, and so forth. Well, because that material is always present. It's psychoactive. There's no time or space in the psyche. It's always present. So when triggered, then we began to realize, okay, but now I'm bringing a larger perspective to that. 
And, and yes, every time it knocks me down, I recover sooner. I recognize, well, that's what that's about. Rather than being owned by it, as we might have been at some earlier stage of our journey, we, we recognize it. We climb out of that hole sooner. And we began to move forward with our lives. But it's a paradox because people project upon us as therapists some notion of cure because they're operating perhaps out of the medical model where you're either diseased or you're cured. Uh, this is more an ongoing dialogue with our own history, an ongoing uh, sort of engagement with the nature of the intrapsychic stories that we all carry within us. And in some ways, you might say therapy is really a kind of interrogation of those stories. So we begin to say, all right, what are the stories in you that are producing these patterns in your life? We don't rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid counterproductive things, but chances are we will. So we began to recognize, all right, there are some intrapsychic clusters of energy that I need to become more aware around because they can be triggered and take over as a kind of shadow government, if you will. And when that happens, you see, I'm, I'm a prisoner of, the of our history. We're pulled out of this moment and brought back into history. So you can see that that dialogue is not just sort of introspection or even self-indulgence in some way. It's, it's really getting at some of the engines that are running our lives. So let me move on to another question because I could keep going on, on this theme, but I'm sure you have some other thoughts. Well, yeah, just in, in related to that, because as you were speaking, I mean, when I came to the book and just exhausted by everything going on here, uh, you know, that was going on in 2020. And now, um, you know, I had this view of, oh, I'm going to look at this in living bet in between times. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to find the answer. And uh, so these things that are within me will then, subside and be gone. And, and what I realized is you mentioned this thing, this concept of the journey is our home. And mm -hmm. so I guess, how do you move someone? And you've alluded to some of this from this idea of victimhood to engagement. Mm -hmm. where they are. Well, first of all, um, a lot of people thought that book was written in response to the uh, COVID uh, uh, disaster that we've been living through. Uh, it was actually finished two years ago, long before any of us knew that that existed. In fact, it didn't at that point, because uh, we're always in some way in a situation of transition. Our bodies are changing every moment. Cells are dying, cells are being reproduced and so forth. I hate to say at a slowing rate, by the way, once you're about 26 years old, but we're always living in between, between what we've understood and what life is bringing us. And so it's in those moments that we will feel the greatest stress, the greatest anxiety, the greatest tendency to regress and start to reestablish the old order, as it were. And, and so part of what we have to learn to do, all of us, is to abide those in-betweens. They happen to us personally, but they happen to us culturally. Our culture is going through profound transitions, as we all know. And where it's heading, no one knows for sure. Anyone who thinks they do, they do are, are really just deluded. But, you know, it's during those times you have to find what it is that supports you. One of the most profound things Jung ever said, and I think about this every single day, he said, we all need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. Because the structures, the relationships, the careers, the outer structures that we've depended upon to sort of carry our sense of self and world, often can dissolve. I mean, one of the things that people have found in the sequestering, for example, 
is how much maybe they were dependent upon their work assignment, uh, their job job, to sort of carry who they were. Those were their marching orders, provisional identity. And when that's disconnected, it falls back upon themselves or upon their family or relationships or, or, or so forth. So a lot of folks have been obliged to start you know, looking at themselves in a new way and, and beginning to say, all right, what does support me through this journey? Because a lot of the stuff that I took for granted, my work habits, my travels, my distractions, et cetera, not available to me, that's fallen back and produced uh, all kinds of symptomatology. I've always been drawn to a naphorism from Emily Dickinson, who wrote this at the height of our civil war. And she was very much aware of the sort of erosion of certain institutions in her lifetime. And she said, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. And I think what she was saying there was in, in difficult times, in murky horizons, you have to have a compass. Do you, do you know you have a compass? How do you consult it? Do you trust it? Are you willing to risk it? And if you have a compass, it can lead you all the way through. And that's part of, again, what's happened during our sequestering. A, a lot of folks have realized, I don't particularly have a compass. I was being carried by so many of my outer structures, practices, behaviors, and, and distractions, and, and so forth. So this is, this is a time for personal accountability and, and cultural accountability. Thank you. Um, another question I have here, and this comes from, I think your book, uh, the audio book, A Life of Meaning. And, and you talk about, I think you allude to when things fall apart and the role mm -hmm. of passages in our, in our lives. And I was wondering if you could discuss the three things that must come through these passages for each of us that you reference, which is keeping our appointment with destiny, reconstructing our maps and, and tracking the numinous. Mm-hmm. Well, um, when I came back from Zurich 45 years ago, and I began seeing people who had different presenting issues, different family histories, et cetera, the one thing that was in common to all was that their understanding of self in world, their reflexive responses, for whatever reason, were not working for them. If, if they had been working, they wouldn't have come to talk to a stranger about it. Uh, their roadmap was no longer applicable to the terrain in which they were finding themselves. So it occurred to me, all right, well, something has died here. Something's played out. Maybe it needs to. And we're in that in-between again, that difficult in-between. That's often what we find in therapy. People come in the in-between because the old understanding and functions, the dependency they had on their marriage or their work situation or whatever is no longer supportive. And, and you have to somehow hold fast during those in-between times until the new emerges. But we can't force it to emerge. We, we just have to, in a sense, hold to ourselves during that time. And, and of course, part of what therapy is about is supportive structure during that time of sort of fragmentation and decompensation until the, the new understanding or new orientation to the world emerges. And that word numinous is very important. Uh, it comes from a Latin verb that means to nod or beckon. It's like we have to, to, to respond to what really speaks to us. When I mentioned that a lot, lots of times our old orientation just plays out, it's because maybe we've outlived it, we've outgrown it, or maybe it was never ours in the first place. It's something we receive in, in good faith, perhaps, but received. And, and, and you know, we, we just exhausted it now.
So one of the tests, I think, is this touches on the life of our spirituality, and I use that term in the broadest sense here, what, which is to say, what is it that, that really touches you and produces an inner resonance? Let's say two of us walk into an art museum, and, and one person is moved by a painting, another person passes by, you know, almost unaware of its being there. Which person's right? Well, we wouldn't say that was a reasonable question. We would say the numinous, the numinosity of the painting reached someone and caused that resonance. And so where there is resonance, there is the path for life. What speaks to us will meet a response intrapsychically. Give you a very specific example. Many times working with depressed people, and we sort of stumble into or bumble into what, what's really important for them. And, you know, their, their body lifts, their, their affect changes, their eyes sparkle. And I've often said, look, look, you're not depressed. Oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. Yes. It's like for a moment there, you hit the numinous. For a moment, you had a clue. This is important for you. This is vital for you. You can't invent that, but you need to respond to that. So if we live in response to what is really capable of generating that resonance in us, we'll find our paths through these changes. And if we keep reconstituting the old, it, we're gonna, it's going to lead to depression and burnout and self-medication and, and, and so forth. When, when you are speaking with somebody and they stumble on that numinous, you know, what are some of the things that you do? Um, I guess in terms of from a directional standpoint, when you when you see that with them in a, in a therapeutic setting, well, I certainly underline that and say, notice your response there was not something that was related to your ego control. It was a spontaneous action of your psyche, because one of the things we have to remember: see, the problem always is the ego thinks it's the boss, thinks it's in charge, when in fact it's often in states of possession by these intrapsychic materials or simply responding to outer stimuli naturally. Um, and, and to realize we all have internal guidance systems that we've known since childhood, that we've learned to override, forget about, take for granted. What is the feeling function? You and I do not create feelings. Um, they happen spontaneously. And later they come to conscious awareness and then we might discard them, anesthetize them, project onto others, ignore them, whatever. But feelings represent autonomous, qualitative analyses of what's happening in our life at that particular moment. So if I'm doing all the right things, which happens to so many people, we get a script from our family, religion, all kinds of sources, and you do it to the best of your ability. You've done your job, so to speak, but it never feels right inside. There's no sense of that resonance or satisfaction. That's your own soul speaking. And I'm using the word soul here synonymous with the Greek word psyche, which is what, what psyche means. We, we have energy systems. We can mobilize our energy and we often need to in service to the tasks of life. But ultimately, when you're putting your energy in the wrong places, it leads to exhaustion, boredom, depression, and so on. And yet when you're doing what's right for you, the energy is always there. It supports you, carries you, and, and so forth. Um, thirdly, I work with dreams. Uh, we don't create dreams, but some intelligence within us 
visits us, sleep research tells us, around six times per night. Nature does not waste energy. It's producing these uh, autonomous responses to our life. And while they often appear to us opaque and obscure, maybe challenging, um, mysterious, nonetheless, some intelligence there is trying to communicate with us. We also produce spontaneously symptoms. Most schools of psychology think, oh, well, how quickly do we get rid of the symptoms? Rather, we have to ask the question, why have they come? What are they asking of me? What, what is the psyche's point of view here? Which is not what we're used to, to asking. Uh, and, and fifthly, there's something most elusive, but most meaningful of all, and that is itself the question of meaning. Is what you're doing truly meaningful to you? If it is, it allows you to pass through all kinds of suffering, some kinds of tests of your resolve. And if what you're doing is not meaningful to you, um, you can force your way through it, but there will never be that sense of inner resonance where you know what you're doing is, is right for you. As Jung said once, the smallest of things with meaning is always greater than the largest of things with mean, without meaning. That's why when people project the meaning process onto materialism, let's say, or power or their children or whatever, um, invariably there's a sense of dissatisfaction, disappointment, uh, even anger that occurs. And, and so the point is, we do not heal, nature heals. And we were close to those elemental guidance systems of nature when we were children, but because we were tiny, vulnerable, and dependent, we of course had to, you know, adjust to whatever the realities were around us. And it's those adjustments, necessary as they were, that further and further estrange a person from his or her sources of, of internal guidance. So it's, it's about at some level stopping, as I see therapies at part is stopping and paying attention to these things until you begin to realize there's, a, there's something in there that is seeking two things, my healing and my growth. And, and when we can ally our attitudes and choices with that, there's a greater sense. It doesn't spare us conflict, suffering, perhaps even isolation from older structures, but it feels right. And something inside of you knows that. So that's, that's the strange paradox. It's, it's our neuroses. <laughs> we are the animal that gets separated from itself, the neurotic animal, you know, the, the sort of wounded creature, if you will. Uh, the, the healing process is reconnecting with the sources of the animal, which is the invigorating sources of our instinctual life that are always there and always trying to speak to us. And one last point about that. We have our authority as children, it's called instinct. But again, we need to adapt and adjust to whatever is happening in our environment. And so with those trade-offs, we get separated from that. So in, in so many ways, this is about coming back to your instinctual truths. And in contact with that, living in accord with that, you, you find your way. Did you know the South Carolina Department of Mental Health is celebrating its 200 year anniversary, offering mental health services for children, families, and adults. SCDMH is one of the first states in the country to provide mental health services. Learn more at www.scdmh.net.
have a question that came in here and it says in analytical psychology there's um saying that the opposite of any truth is always also true would you explain the meaning behind this and its implications sure sure and you spoke about that a great deal but basically simple issues have <clears throat> resolution this or that the most important issues of life are always paradoxical. There's always two sides and both are true at some level. The great truths always involve a contradiction. So the word, the shadow was mentioned in one of the inquiries before. The, the shadow represents those parts of ourselves that we really don't wanna look at in ourselves. And you know, we don't wanna look at our vanity or our pettiness or our jealousy, but, but they're there because we're not exempt from the human project. And, and they'll show up in life, but it also represents our unlived life. It represents our joy, our spontaneity, our creative process. So you can see there that the encounter with that which is rejected by the ego or distant from the ego, because it asks something that is complicated and difficult for the ego structure, is nonetheless vital to that healing process. Or we can say there's constantly in the field of intimate relationship, the push-pull. What is my, what can I reasonably ask of my partner? And what do I need to ask of myself? You know, that's a paradox, you see. A mature relationship is one in which I say, you know, if I can identify what I really need to address myself, then I'm lifting that off of my partner. If I don't ask that question, I'm continuously dumping it on my partner or my children. One of the things I mentioned in an earlier book, uh, Living the Examined Life, a chapter that's stuck in the throat of an awful lot of people, I can tell you, is one of the tasks of the second half of life is to free your children from you. Because we all know how much time we spend in therapy trying to un <laughs> unravel the person's journey from whatever happened in the parent-child relationships. And yet parents themselves often project their unlived life onto their children. You are going to make me feel good about myself. You're going to carry this on, or you're going to validate and, and ratify my values by showing up with similar values. Surprisingly, you're going to turn out like me. I mean, that's in the sort of... <laughs> grab bag of every parent and the unconscious parent will, will be very destructive in imposing that on a child, thinking I'm doing the right thing for the child, when in fact it's all, all our unexamined life. So again, everything that really matters in life and, and really matters in therapy is going to be paradoxical, meaning there's always something there that, that is valuable. For, for example, we use the term passages before, Every passage is a death. Well, the ego doesn't like that. It's not thrilled. Um, and yet, how does nature clear the way without that death, so to speak? How is the new ever going to arrive? How do we ever grow up? How do we, how do we mature? How do we move through the stages of our journey if something doesn't have to die first? So there's the paradox there that out of death comes new life. But for new life to occur, a death must occur. You know, that's a classic paradox there. It's the death and, and rebirth motif at work within us. So I, I, I think, you know, it's the ego that wants to say, but life is supposed to be simple, right? We're supposed to be able to figure it out, get the right instructions, right roadmap. 
and walk into some sunlit meadow where conflict is behind us, all is clear, and everybody's uh, you know happy with things. Well, dream on. That's not realistic. That's not the nature of our own psyche. And the more we cling to that fantasy, the more disillusioned and disappointed we'll be. The critical piece of psychological development is the capacity to live with ambiguity. The moment that the ego experiences ambiguity, it's going to feel threatened. That's why I mentioned this with regard to our national discords. And the mature psyche can handle change and transition and deal with the tension of opposites. The immature and most threatened egos can't. And that's when, you know, there's the disruption that we have at this moment. So uh, again, <laughs> paradox is the only way of expressing a complexity of life. And every time I think I've figured it out, I've gotten one-sided. So my own psyche is going to show up somewhere over here symptomatically trying to bring me back into some kind of differing balance. And so what does it look like if somebody comes to you, obviously there's this element of, you know, I do this very well, but something's not right that you had kind of referenced. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe they have gotten in touch with certain things that maybe um, speak to their soul where they need to be. But again, there's still this victimization versus the engagement piece of it. You know, I, well, I don't have the money to do this or I don't have the time or I have all these responsibilities. And this is, I guess, the stuckness element that you're referring to. How do, how do you help somebody move forward mm -hmm. from that? Well, first of all, you referenced there a, a statement that I actually learned from one of my clients in Houston a number of years ago, who was a long-term member of AA. And he said one of the sayings of his group was, uh, um, you know, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. I thought that's a lovely sentence. I can apply to all of us in all circumstances. You know, my, my, my systems aren't working so well, but I'm, I'm very adept at doing them, you know. So there has to be that some sense of bankruptcy, some sense of exhaustion before we really began to sort of say, all right, I have to let go of that, relinquish that somehow. But, but out of that, what's going to emerge, you see? Where, where, where do you go from there? And I think everyone has, see, in the first half of life, you can say your basic summons is you know, to develop enough ego, to step out onto the playground, to deal with your parents, to deal with a school teacher, to step out into the world and say to an employer, hire me, you can trust me to show up and do the job and relationship, trust me, I'm going to meet you halfway on these things. Um, but then why are we here after age 35 or 40? Then, then you have to say, that's been a dialogue between the ego and the world. Now there's time for an ego and the soul. Why am I here really? Rather than being just a socioeconomic unit or a vehicle for the renewal of the species or whatever, why am I here? What is wanting to enter the world through me? That's, that raises the question of vocation. What am I called to do? I'm not talking just about job. It could lead to a change in career, certainly, but that's, that's too literalistic at the moment. It's more about... What is seeking expression through me? And, and then the ego is, again, brought back into a dialogue with the transcendent other that is intrapsychic. When we do, that's in some way a spiritual project. The first is a social project. The second is a spiritual pro project because it's really dealing with, you know, the mystery of our 
being here in the first place? Why am I here in service to what? If I don't ask those questions in some fashion, I'm going to be on automatic pilot or simply responding to the strongest stimuli in my environment, which is often what the case may be. But at the same time, when I look at these things intrapsychically, then I realize something there is summoning me to an accountability. That word that we use so often, accountability, is increasingly an important word for me because it, it says I need to be accountable for what is really seeking that expression, or I, I need to be accountable for, if I'm not being accountable, look what's spilling into the world through me and producing consequences out there in, in the world, my children and others. And also discernment. Discernment's another important word. We're bombarded with traffic constantly. It's busier than O'Hare Airport or Hartsfield Jackson at rush hour. All right, which of those threads are appropriate to respond to? Which are the archaic messages of childhood? Which are the you know, bombardments of the commercial world and so forth? And which voices come from my own soul? And that discernment process has to go on continuously. And that's why observing these other elemental functions like the feeling function, the, the, the energy systems, meaning, dreams, et cetera, help us along the way to do that discernment process. Because if we're tracking what's right for us, we feel the support within, even if life is difficult and, and conflictual. And when we don't have that, you know, life is, life is a mess. It's a journey. You know, as, as Jung put it very modestly once, he said, With, without that engagement, life goes less well. And we all know about that. And this idea of the archaic messages of childhood that you just referenced there, I think it kind of relates to um, the question that somebody just sent me, which is, what do you mean by the concept of uh, storying our world and the problems we all face with this phenomenon? Sure, sure. Well, here are the animal who needs meaning at all costs. We can't live meaningless lives. And this begins in infancy, begins in childhood. What happened? Who are you? Who am I? What's this about? And all the collateral questions that go with that. Are, are, are you reliable? Can I trust that you're going to be there? Are you warm and supportive and inviting? Are, are you withholding? Are you punitive? And who am I in this mix? You know, we're asking large questions, even as tiny babies and, and toddler children, about what's going on here? What's the world about? What am, what am I to do here? And, and what am I in myself? You know, am I valuable or, un, you know, should I hide out? Am I, can I ask for something? Those elemental questions are inherent to our species. And we begin to story them in the sense that we develop splinter narratives. The child couldn't understand that maybe the remoteness or the angers, let's say, of a parent were never about me. They were because their, their life is not going so well at the time. They're exhausted. They're, 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 in, they're troubled. Okay, I don't know that. As an infant, as a toddler, as a child, I internalize all that. It's being about me. That's why we take on the kind of messages of our world. We're constantly reading the world as a statement to us about ourselves. This is how children get shamed by poverty, racism, sexism, alcoholism, abuse, etc. None of which had to do with the worth and weight of their own souls. 
but we story it nonetheless. And then the problem is we become prisoners of our stories. The stories that help us try to make sense of our world and even give us some coping strategies where we sort of can approach it or run from it or stay out of harm's way. Whatever the, what are the behaviors that are attached to these archaic stories? Those become core complexes. You've all heard the word complex. The complex is a neutral word, but you have to start then saying, all right, it's a structure of energy that's loaded with energy and has a script and has a story attached to it. And when it's triggered, it has the power to usurp the ego, pull us out of this time and place, and put us back into the field of energy that was prevalent at the time of its formation. So that's why it's rare at some level to be in this moment, truly, because this moment is so you know, flooded by the materials of the past. And this is what leads to our repetitions. I've often said to people, if you want to start your personal analysis, and you don't need a therapist for this, start with your patterns, because your patterns are revealing of those kinds of stories operating intrapsychically and autonomously in your life, particularly the ones you find troubling to you, um, producing bad consequences, maybe harmful to others. And then work backwards and say, all right, what we do is logical based on the premise of the story. We don't do crazy things. We do logical things. I give you tons of examples of what seems to be crazy behavior. But if you look at the intrapsychic uh, premise, you realize it's a logical response to that. And then you work backwards. And that's how you begin to make that invisible world visible. The problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So by definition, we can't talk about it, but we have to be able to work from the visible world back into the invisible world. And one of the places to start are those patterns or those places where maybe people get into our face and say, you know, what you did was just hurtful to me or something like that. And no matter what we think about it or whatever rationalization we might have, we have to take that very seriously and say that in a sense came from one of those, quote, stories in there. So think of a story, a psychological story is, is essentially a, a, a child's interpretation of the world based on a child's capacity to understand, which is one why we sometimes encounter that paradox later in therapy, strange, strange paradox that what happened to you and what may have governed your life uh, strategy up to this point was never about you. It was about someone else's problem or, or the intercession of fate. And, and it wasn't about you. What, what is truly in you is wishing its own free expression, unencumbered by that story. And frankly, that's a lifetime work because no matter how tall the structure may be, you know, the elevator always has to go through the bottom floors to get to the top. So we're always in some way processing these archaic stories and playing out in the field of our relationships or how we respond to our work environment or to our children or, or whatever. This is why this work is an ongoing work. It's a lifetime work. It, 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 it uh, can only be addressed with a measure of discipline and a measure of attentiveness and um, a certain willingness to be instructed, to realize there are things going on inside of each of us of which we know virtually nothing. 
And, and yet it keeps spilling into the world. And when we do that, we become potentially less problematic to others. And frankly, we have a very interesting story unfolding. I've often said to people, this is not about cure, but it's about making your life more interesting. And I submit to you, that's a very profound gift that you realize that every day, high drama going on in here, rising from the pillow in the morning. I, I face the world confronting, first of all, fear and lethargy, the world that says, hey, it's too big out here. You can't handle it. Try to find a way to hide out today. Lethargy that says, pull a blanket over your head, have some chocolate and turn on Oprah. You know, those are intrapsychic enemies. They have nothing to do with out there. They're all in here. And I've got to face that first. But then I have to enter the world as it is. And I'm going to be less capable of coping with it and living with any integrity to the degree that I'm, I'm more governed by those autonomous stories. And to the degree I've not been able to identify my own sources of support and direction and to the degree I've not yet discovered what we all have, and that's what Emily Dickinson said, is the compass within that helps us chart our way through the dark wood. Yeah, I'm reminded, I think you had mentioned something about, I don't know if it was Marcus Aurelius or, or whatever it was that inspired you where you have some statements that you, you think about every morning as you sort of get up sure. from that pillow. I don't know if you sure. could share, share that with well, I, I, I'm moved by a passage in the journal of Marcus Aurelius, who's out there in the, you know, in the wilderness about to fight for his life. And here's the emperor. He could be back at the palace having a good time. And uh, he, he says, basically, this is the this is the task you've been born to. Um, you know, don't grumble. Uh, be privileged. This is this is your task. So address it. So I've, I've developed a, a personal six word motto, which I say to myself, and any one of you can utilize it if you want. And briefly it's this, shut up, suit up, show up. Shut up says, I'm talking to me now, not anybody else. I'm not being impolite. Shut up says to me, stop whining. You're lucky, you're privileged. You, you, you. There are people out there who have no food. There are people out there who don't have a roof over their head. There are people out there whose children are being killed. So you don't have any problems, you know, the problems you think are trivial. Shut up. Speaking myself again. Secondly, suit up, prepare, do what you need to do. Don't expect life to make it easy. Prepare, work hard, show up, meaning just do the best you can. You know, you know, the old saying, life's difficult and then you die. Well, yeah, but the, the real trick is, is this life meaningful to you? If it is, you'll know it. If it is, everything inside of you will confirm it. And if it isn't, something inside will revolt. And that's what brings people to therapy is that revolt. And to show up means none of us get it right. None of us are perfect. Perfection is a terrible complex to labor with. It's like you do your best. And, and extend a little grace and forgiveness to yourself. I find the most difficult thing maybe is to forgive myself. I expect better of myself, but, but, but grace is, you know, as Paul Tillich said, accept the fact that you're accepted despite the fact that you're unacceptable. You know, there's the paradox again. Um, I, I am a person who is trying to be accountable and I'm not always on target 
and I do stupid things and counterproductive things. And, and all I can do is come back to the table and try to do it better the next time. I'm David Diana, the host and producer of A Look Within, conversations on mental health and well-being. And we want to thank Dr. James Hollis for joining us in this conversation today. And you may learn all about his work at jameshollis.net. And of course, we want to thank all of you for listening and hope you'll join us next time. A Look Within Conversations on Mental Health and Wellbeing podcast is hosted and produced by David Diana and the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.